0: Section thirty two of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three, by James Boswell, Section thirty two. I read Mandeville forty, or I believe fifty, years ago. He did not puzzle me, he opened my views into real life very much. Footnote. Johnson, in his political economy, seems to have been very much under Mandeville's influence. Thus, in attacking Milton's position that a popular government was the most frugal, for the trappings of a monarchy would set up our ordinary commonwealth," he says, "...the support and expense of a court is, for the most part, only a particular kind of traffic, by which money is circulated, without any national impoverishment." Mandeville, in much the same way, says, "...when a covetous statesman is gone, who spent his whole life in fattening himself with the spoils of the nation, and had by pinching and plundering, heaped up an immense treasure. It ought to fill every good member of society with joy to behold the uncommon profuseness of his son. This is refunding to the public whatever was robbed from it as soon as the nation has its own back again, we ought not to quarrel with the manner in which the plunder is repaid. No, it is clear that the happiness of society depends on virtue. In Sparta, theft was allowed by general consent. Theft, therefore, was there not a crime. But then there was no security. And what a life must they have had, when there was no security? Without truth, there must be a dissolution of society. As it is, there is so little truth, that we are almost afraid to trust our ears. But how should we be, if falsehood were multiplied ten times? Society is held together by communication and information. And I remember this remark of Sir Thomas Brown's. Do the devils lie? No, for then hell could not subsist. Footnote. In The Adventurer, Johnson writes, The devils, says Sir Thomas Brown, do not tell lies to one another, for truth is necessary to all societies, nor can the society of hell subsist without it. Mr. Wilton, the editor of Brown's Works, says I should be glad to know the authority of this assertion. I infer from this that the passage is not in Brown's works. End of footnote. Talking of Miss Dash, a literary lady, footnote, Hannah Moore, end of footnote, he said I was obliged to speak to Miss Reynolds to let her know that I desired she would not flatter me so much. Somebody now observed, she flatters Garrick. Johnson, she is in the right to flatter Garrick. She is in the right for two reasons. First, because she has the world with her, who have been praising Garrick these thirty years, and secondly, because she is rewarded for it by Garrick. Footnote. In her visits to London, she was commonly the guest of the Garricks. A few months before this conversation, Garrick wrote a prologue and epilogue for her tragedy of Percy. He invested for her the money that she made by this play. End of footnote. Why should she flatter me? I can do nothing for her. Let her carry her praise to a better market. But no. In April 1784, she records that she called on Johnson shortly after she wrote Le Bar Bleu. As to it, she continues, all the flattery I ever received from everybody together would not make up his son. He said there was no name in poetry, that might not be glad to own it all this from johnson that parsimonious praiser he wrote of it to mrs thrale on april the nineteenth seventeen eighty four it is in my opinion a very great performance dr beattie wrote on july the thirty-first seventeen eighty four johnson told me with great solemnity that miss moore was the most powerful Pacificatrix in the English language. Then, turning to Mrs. Knowles, You, madam, have been flattering me all evening. I wish you would give Boswell a little now. If you knew his merit as well as I do, you would say a great deal. He is the best travelling companion in the world somebody mentioned the rev mr mason's prosecution of mr murray the bookseller for having inserted in a collection of Gray's poems only fifty lines of which mr mason had still the exclusive property under the statute of queen anne and that mr mason had persevered notwithstanding his being requested to name his own terms of compensation Johnson signified his displeasure at Mr Mason's conduct very strongly, but added, by way of showing that he was not surprised at it, Mason's a Whig." Mrs Knowles, not hearing distinctly, What? A prig, sir? Johnson, worse, madam. A Whig, But he is both. I expressed a horror at the thought of death. Mrs Knowles, nay, thou shouldst not have a horror for what is the gate of life. Johnson, standing upon the hearth, rolling about with a serious, solemn and somewhat gloomy air. No rational man can die without uneasy apprehension. Mrs Knowles, the scriptures tell us the righteous shall have hope in his death. Johnson. Yes, madam, that is, he shall not have despair. But consider, his hope of salvation must be founded on the terms on which it is promised that the mediation of our Saviour shall be applied to us, namely, obedience. And where obedience has failed, then as suppletary to it, repentance. But what man can say that his obedience has been such as he would approve of in another, or even in himself upon close examination, or that his repentance has not been such as to require being repented of? No man can be sure that his obedience and repentance will obtain salvation. Mrs Knowles but divine intimation of acceptance may be made to the soul. Johnson Madam, it may, but I should not think the better of a man who would tell me on his deathbed he was sure of salvation. A man cannot be sure himself that he has divine intimation of acceptance, much less can he make others sure that he has it. Footnote Johnson, in the convict's address, makes Dodd say, Possibly it may please God to afford us some consolation, some secret intimations of acceptance and forgiveness, but these radiations of favour are not always felt by the sincerest penitents. To the greater part of those whom angels stand ready to receive, nothing is granted in this world beyond rational hope and with hope founded on promise we may well be satisfied end of footnote boswell then sir we must be contented to acknowledge that death is a terrible thing johnson yes sir i have made no approaches to a state which can look on it as not terrible Footnote I do not find anything able to reconcile us to death, but extreme pain, shame, or despair for poverty, imprisonment, ill-fortune, grief, sickness, and old age do generally fail End of footnote. Mrs. Knowles, seeming to enjoy a pleasing serenity in the persuasion of benignant divine light. Does not St. Paul say, I have fought the good fight of faith, I have finished my course, Henceforth is laid up for me A crown of life. Footnote I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, Henceforth there is laid up for me A crown of righteousness. End of footnote Johnson yes madam but here was a man inspired a man who had been converted by supernatural interposition boswell in prospect death is dreadful but in fact we find that people die easy johnson why sir most people have not thought much of the matter so cannot say much and supposed they die easy. Few believe it certain that they are then to die, and those who do set themselves to behave with resolution, as a man does who is going to be hanged. He is not the less unwilling to be hanged. Miss Seward, there is one mode of the fear of death, which is certainly absurd, and that is the fear of annihilation which is only a pleasing sleep without a dream. Johnson It is neither pleasing nor sleep. It is nothing. Now mere existence is so much better than nothing that one would rather exist even in pain than not exist. Footnote Inde illud maesonatis tapissimum votum Co et debilitatem non recusat, et pomitatem et novissime acutam crucem, dummodo modu mala, spiritus prorogetu. Debilem facit omanu, om debilem pede coxa, tuba astroegiberum, lubricus quarte dentes, vita dum superest, est hunk Michi ver si cruce sustine. Seneca's Epistles, number one hundred and one. Dryden makes Gonzalvo say in The Rival Ladies, Act 4, Scene One. For men with horror dissolution meet. The minutes e'en of painful life are sweet. In Paradise Lost, Moloch and Belial take opposite sides on this point. Moloch What doubt we to incense his utmost ire, which to the height enraged will either quite consume us and reduce to nothing this essential? Happier far than miserable to have eternal being. Belial who would lose, though full of pain, this intellectual being, those thoughts that wander through eternity, to perish rather, swallowed up and lost in the wide womb of uncreated night, devoid of sense and motion? Cooper, at times at least, held with Moloch. He wrote to his friend Newton, I feel, I will not tell you what, and yet I must. A wish that I had never been, a wonder that I am, and an ardent but hopeless desire not to be. End of If annihilation be nothing, then existing in pain is not a comparative state, but is a positive evil which i cannot think we should choose i must be allowed to differ here and it would lessen the hope of a future state founded on the argument that the supreme being who is good as he is great will hereafter compensate for our present sufferings in this life for if existence such as we have it here be comparatively a good we have no reason to complain, though no more of it should be given to us. But if our only state of existence were in this world, then we might with some reason complain that we are so dissatisfied with our enjoyments compared with our desires. Johnson. The lady confounds annihilation, which is nothing, with the apprehension of it, which is dreadful. It is in the apprehension of it that the horror of annihilation consists. Footnote. Johnson recorded, At Ashbourne I hope to talk seriously with Taylor. Taylor published in 1787 a letter to Samuel Johnson on the subject of a future state. He writes that, Having heard that Johnson had said that he would prefer a state of torment to that of annihilation, he told him that such a declaration coming from him might be productive of evil consequences. Dr J desired him to arrange his thoughts on the subject. Taylor says that Johnson's entry about the serious talk refers to this matter. I believe that Johnson meant to warn Taylor about the danger he was running of entering the state of torment. End of footnote. Of John Wesley, he said, he can talk well on any subject. Footnote. Wesley, like Johnson, was a wide reader. On his journeys, he read books of great variety, such as The Odyssey, rousseau's emile boswell's corsica swift's letters hoole's tasso robertson's charles v quintus curtius franklin's letters on electricity besides a host of theological works like johnson too he was a great dabbler in physic and a reader of medical works his writings covered a great range He wrote, he says, among other works, an English, a Latin, a Greek, a Hebrew, and a French grammar, a treatise on logic, and another on electricity. In the British Isles he had travelled perhaps more than any man of his time, and he had visited North America and more than one country of Europe. He had seen an almost infinite variety of characters. End of footnote. Buzzle. Pray, sir, what has he made of his story of a ghost? Johnson. Why, sir, he believes it, but not on sufficient authority. He did not take time enough to examine the girl. It was at Newcastle, where the ghost was said to have appeared to a young woman several times, mentioning something about the right to an old house, advising application to be made to an attorney which was done and at the same time saying the attorney would do nothing which proved to be the fact this says john is a proof that a ghost knows our thoughts Footnote. the story is recorded in wesley's journal it was at sunderland and not at newcastle where the scene was laid The ghost did not prophesy ill of the attorney. On the contrary, it said to the girl, Go to Durham, employ an attorney there, and the house will be recovered. She went to Durham and put the affair into Mr Huggle, the attorney's hands. A month after, according to the girl, the ghost came about eleven. I said, Lord bless me. What has brought you here again, he said, Mr. Huggle has done nothing but wrote one letter on this Wesley writes by way of comment, so he, the ghost, had observed him, the attorney narrowly though unseen End of footnote. No. now laughing, it is not necessary to know our thoughts. "'to tell that an attorney will sometimes do nothing. "'Charles Wesley, who is a more stationary man, "'does not believe the story. "'I am sorry that John did not take more pains "'to inquire into the evidence for it.' "'Miss Seward, with an incredulous smile, "What, sir, about a ghost?' "'Johnson, with solemn vehemence, "'Yes, madam.' This is a question which after five thousand years is yet undecided, a question, whether in theology or philosophy, one of the most important that can come before the human understanding. But no. Johnson, with his horror of annihilation, caught at everything which strengthened his belief in the immortality of the soul. Boswell mentions Johnson's elevated wish for more and more evidence for spirit and records the same desire, Southey says of supernatural appearances with regard to the good end which they may be supposed to answer, it will be end sufficient if sometimes one of those unhappy persons who, looking through the dim glass of infidelity see nothing beyond this life, and the narrow sphere of mortal existence, should, from the established truth of one such story, trifling and objectless as it might otherwise appear, be led to a conclusion that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in their philosophy. End of footnote. Mrs Knowles mentioned, as a proselyte to Quakerism, Miss Dash, a young lady well known to Dr. Johnson, for whom he had shown much affection, while she ever had and still retained a great respect for him. Footnote Miss Jane Harry, end of footnote. Mrs. Knowles at the same time took an opportunity of letting him know that the amiable young creature was sorry at finding that he was offended at her leaving the Church of England and embracing a simpler faith, and, in the gentlest and most persuasive manner, solicited his kind indulgence for what was sincerely a matter of conscience. Johnson, frowning very angrily, Madam, she is an odious wench. She could not have any proper conviction that it was her duty to change her religion, which is the most important of all subjects and should be studied with all care and with all the helps we can get. She knew no more of the church which she left and that which she embraced than she did of the difference between the Copernican and Ptolemaic systems. Mrs Knowles, she had the New Testament before her. Johnson, Madam, she could not understand the New Testament, the most difficult book in the world for which the study of a life is required, Mrs Knowles. It is clear as to the essentials, Johnson, but not as to controversial points. The heathens were easily converted because they had nothing to give up. But we ought not, without very strong conviction indeed, to desert the religion in which we have been educated. is the religion given you, the religion in which it may be said Providence has placed you. If you live conscientiously in that religion you may be safe. But error is dangerous indeed if you err when you choose a religion for yourself. Mrs Knowles Must we then go by implicit faith? Johnson Why, madam, the greatest part of our knowledge is implicit faith. And as to religion, have we heard all that a disciple of Confucius, all that a Mohammedan can say for himself? He then rose again into passion and attacked the young proselyte in the severest terms of reproach, so that both the ladies seemed to be much shocked. Footnote. Mrs Knowles, not satisfied with the fame of her needlework, the Sutile pictures mentioned by Johnson, in which she has indeed displayed much dexterity, nay, with the fame of reasoning better than women generally do, as I have fairly shown her to have done, communicated to me a dialogue of considerable length, which, after many years had elapsed, she wrote down, as having passed between Dr Johnson and herself at this interview. As I had not the least recollection of it, and did not find the smallest trace of it in my record taken at the time, I could not, in consistency with my firm regard to authenticity, insert it in my work. It has, however, been published in the Gentleman's Magazine for June 1791, it chiefly relates to the principles of the sect called Quakers, and no doubt the lady appears to have greatly the advantage of Dr Johnson in argument as well as expression. From what I have now stated, and from the internal evidence of the paper itself, any one who may have the curiosity to peruse it will judge whether it was wrong in me to reject it, however willing to gratify Mrs Knowles, Boswell. Johnson mentioned the sutile pictures in a letter dated May sixteenth seventeen seventy six describing the dinner at mrs Dilly's and there he wrote was mrs Knowles the Quaker that works the sutile misprinted by mrs piozzi futile pictures she is a staffordshire woman and I am to go and see her Staffordshire is the nursery of art. Here they grow up till they are transplanted to London. He is pleasantly alluding to the fact that he was a Staffordshire man. In the dialogue in the Gentleman's Magazine for 1791, Mrs Knowles says that the wrangle ended thus. Mrs K. I hope Dr thou wilt not remain unforgiving, and that you will renew your friendship and joyfully meet at last in those bright regions where pride and prejudice can never enter. Dr Johnson Meet her? I never desire to meet fools anywhere. This sarcastic turn of wit was so pleasantly received that the doctor joined in the laugh his spleen was dissipated he took his coffee and became for the remainder of the evening very cheerful and entertaining did miss austen find here the title of pride and prejudice for her novel End of footnote. we remained together till it was pretty late notwithstanding occasional explosions of violence we were all delighted upon the whole with johnson I compared him at this time to a warm West Indian climate where you have a bright sun, quick vegetation, luxuriant foliage, luscious fruits, but where the same heat sometimes produces thunder, lightning, earthquakes in a terrible degree. April the 17th being Good Friday I waited on Johnson as usual footnote of this day he recorded it has happened this week as it never happened in passion week before that i have never dined at home and i have therefore neither practiced abstinence nor peculiar devotion end of footnote i observed at breakfast that although it was a part of his abstemious discipline on this most solemn fast to take no milk in his tea. Yet, when Mrs. De Moulin inadvertently poured it in, he did not reject it. I talked of the strange indecision of mind and imbecility in the common occurrences of life, which we may observe in some people. Johnson, why, sir? I am in the habit of getting others to do things for me. Boswell, what sir? Have you that weakness? Johnson, yes sir. But I always think afterwards I should have done it better for myself. I told him that at a gentleman's house where there was thought to be such extravagance or bad management that he was living much beyond his income, his lady had objected to the cutting of a pickled mango and that i had taken an opportunity to ask the price of it and found it was only 2 shillings so here was a very poor saving johnson sir that is the blundering economy of a narrow understanding it is stopping one hole in a sieve I expressed some inclination to publish an account of my travels upon the continent of Europe, for which I had a variety of materials collected. Johnson, I do not say, sir, you may not publish your travels, but I give you my opinion that you would lessen yourself by it. What can you tell of countries so well known as those upon the continent of Europe which you have visited? Boswell, but I can give an entertaining narrative with many incidents, anecdotes, jeu d'esprit and remarks, so as to make very pleasant reading. Johnson, my sir, most modern travellers in Europe who have published their travels have been laughed at. I would not have you added to the number. Footnote I believe, however, I shall follow my own opinion. For the world has shown a very flattering partiality to my writings on many occasions. Boswell. Boswell, after recording a story about Voltaire, adds, In contradiction to this story, see in my journal the account which Tronchin gave me of Voltaire. This journal was probably destroyed by Boswell's family. By his will, he left his manuscripts and letters to Sir W. Forbes, Mr. Temple and Mr. Malone to be published for the benefit of his younger children as they shall decide. The editor of Boswelliana says that these three literary executors did not meet and the entire business of the trust was administered by Sir W. Forbes who appointed as his law agent robert boswell cousin german of the deceased by that gentleman's advice boswell's manuscripts were left to the disposal of his family and it is believed that the whole were immediately destroyed the indolence of malone and temple and the brutish ignorance of the boswells have indeed much to answer for End of footnote. the world is now not contented to be merely entertained by a traveller's narrative they want to learn something. Footnote. He that would travel for the entertainment of others should remember that the great object of remark is human life. End of now, some of my friends asked me why I did not give some account of my travels in France. The reason is plain. Intelligent readers had seen more of France than I had. You might have liked my travels in France, and the club might have liked them. But upon the whole, there would have been more ridicule than good produced by them. Boswell I cannot agree with you, sir. People would like to read what you say of anything. Suppose a face has been painted by fifty painters before. Still, we love to see it done by Sir Joshua. Johnson True, sir. But Sir Joshua cannot paint a face when he has not time to look upon it. Boswell, Sir, a sketch of any sort by him is valuable. And, Sir, to talk to you in your own style, raising my voice and shaking my head, you should have given us your travels in France. I am sure I am right, and there's an end on not I said to him, that it was certainly true, as my friend Dempster had observed in his letter to me upon the subject, that a great part of what was in his journey to the Western Isles of Scotland had been in his mind before he left London. Johnson. Why, yes, sir, the topics were, and books of travels will be good in proportion to what a man has previously in his mind, his knowing what to observe, his power of contrasting one mode of life with another. As the Spanish proverb says, he who would bring home the wealth of the Indies must carry the wealth of the Indies with him. So it is in travelling. A man must carry knowledge with him if he would bring home knowledge. Boswell. The proverb, I suppose, sir, means he must carry a large stock with him to trade with. Johnson, yes, sir. It was a delightful day. As we walked to St Clement's Church, footnote Johnson recorded, Boswell came in to go to church. Talk lost our time, and we came to church late at the second lesson. End of footnote. I again remarked that Fleet Street was the most cheerful scene in the world. Fleet Street, said I, is in my mind more delightful than Kempe, Johnson. Aye, sir, but let it be compared with Mull. There was a very numerous congregation today at St Clement's Church, which Dr Johnson said he observed with pleasure. And now I am to give a pretty full account of one of the most Curious incidents in Johnson's life, of which he himself has made the following minute on this day. In my return from church, I was accosted by Edwards, an old fellow-collegian, who had not seen me since seventeen twenty nine. He knew me, and asked if I remembered one Edwards. I did not at first recollect the name. Gradually, as we walked along, we covered it and told him a conversation that had passed at an alehouse between us. My purpose is to continue our acquaintance. It was in Butcher Row that this meeting happened. Mr Edwards, who was a decent-looking elderly man in grey clothes and a wig of many curls, accosted Johnson with familiar confidence. Knowing who he was, while Johnson returned his salutation with a courteous formality, as to a stranger. But as soon as Edwards had brought to his recollection their having been at Pembroke College together nine-and-forty years ago, he seemed much pleased, asked where he lived, and said he should be glad to see him in Bolt Court. Edwards. Ah, sir, we are old men now. It was observed, how many we have outlived. I hope, yet hope, that my future life shall be better than my past. End of footnote. End of section thirty-two.